You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 40 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Monday, the 16th of January, 2017. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everybody. Will Forster. Hello, everybody. And Harrison Avery. Hello, hello. Nice to have you on board, Harrison. Your first podcast with Yeah, us. happy to be here. Uh, how's everyone's week been? Anyone been up to anything interesting? Harrison, are you, okay, are you a regular listener to the podcast? I am a semi-regular listener to the podcast. Sorry, you can say this. <laughs> to it's fine. To be honest. You do work with us all day, every day. I completely I understand if you don't want to then go yeah. home and just listen to us talk. It's talking. like a mini podcast in the office every day. <laughs> <laughs> You finished your board well? I finished it, yeah, begrudgingly, because it looked so terrible by the time I got to the end that I just thought, ah, I'll get it, I'll finish it, get it watertight, surf it, and then I'm done. That's it. The article that you wrote about the process of making it, I Mm. think, is now our most read article we've ever published on a magazine. I think you're right. It's had almost 50 shares. How many of them were you? (laughs) (laughs) Or my mother, just in numerous different named accounts. Linda Forster, Linda Horster, Linda Sorster. (laughs) Oh, that's who that is. That's her, yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought the board looked very good as like a piece of art. Yes. I'm I'm not sure that I would have pulled it off the rack and it would have been my first choice in a surf shop. No. It looked like, and correct me if I'm wrong, and it may have just been the lens, but it looked like the rocker almost seemed to go the other way slightly. No, that that was sort of uh, a light and the wax job. It's It's fairly... Uh, straight with just entry rocker because actually the foam it you know the foam is flat when you buy it I didn't add any shaping to the top only the essentially the rails and then the entry rocker so it is actually pretty square even though the photos didn't show that so if you haven't read the article listeners it's on surf simply magazine but what was pretty cool is that will made the whole board just with stuff he bought at the hardware store in your living room basically are you suggesting I have a hardware store in my living room? No. no. Oh, I thought this. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah. Say, yeah, all right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I made it all um, yeah, in, in my studio apartment, which was interesting for all the polyester resin fumes that tried to kill me on a regular basis. Yeah, I always it, think any salad is nicer if it's just got a little layer of like polyurethane <laughs> dust yeah, over the top. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All what right. have you been up to, Harrison? Uh, the ways have been really fun lately, so I've just been having a little bit of fun experimenting with some different fin setups in a couple of my boards and uh, riding a lot of them as a twin fin. I've got this set of FCS keel fins I've been trying out just to see if I can get a little bit of a different feel from some of my boards, and yeah, it's been it's been cool. I actually took one of my uh, one of my longboard fins, this little mm-hmm. 7-inch Takayama longboard fin I've got, and I kind of adjusted the base of it so that it would fit into an FCS fin box. and been trying a few of my short boards as a single fin, which is pretty cool. How's Just, that working out? Yeah, it's good. It gives you this really kind of fast, loose feel that you don't get from three fins, you know? There's mm-hmm. a lot less drag, but at the same time, it's, you know, it's not as responsive, so it kind of forces you to surf the board on rail a little bit more. So h- how did you feel in terms of the maneuvers you were thinking about trying to do on the same board, but with a single fin in it rather than a thruster setup? Like if you were bottom turning and you were like looking at the waves standing up in front of you and you usually would have just kind of gone up and tried to hit the lip, what were you kind of like thinking and feeling with the single fin in? Yeah, the the main difference I noticed is just initially off the takeoff, the rail kind of locks in a little bit more than it would with three fins. You know, breaking the rail out of the wave is a little bit trickier with a single fin. And the board pivots much more quickly than a tri-fin or a thruster would, you know, so it's, 
you kind of have to draw your turns out. Like you can definitely snap the board in the pocket, but mm -hmm. if you're out on the open face, sort of like forces you to draw your lines out a little bit more than you would with three or four fins. I sometimes, um, we, so Harry and Jesse and I spent a lot of time this week redesigning or sort of updating our tree of knowledge. And one of the things we spent a bunch of time on was, was on like the latter half of the level three section of the tree was on connecting maneuvers together. And, mm. and I always think that actually getting off a thruster and getting on a single fin is, is a really good way because you have to do those bigger lines of thinking more about where is a turn going to take me and where am I going to end up rather than with a thruster you can sometimes end up thinking like how awesome do I look in the middle of doing this turn if someone had taken a photo you know what I mean yeah I think um you know that as far as a lot of people will say that you know riding getting on a bunch of different boards riding different boards is really good for your surfing because it challenges you to draw different lines and approach the wave differently and and I would you know I agree with that I would argue that you know just changing the fins up on a single board can do the same thing have a similar effect riding a couple of my boards as a twin fin was it was a cool feeling because it almost makes the board feel like a completely different board so what yeah. you would expect the board to do because you've ridden it so many times as a thruster is totally different with the two fins in it you know there's a lot less drag the board's really fast um, but it has this kind of cool and fun unpredictability to it you know where you get sort of halfway through your turn and sometimes the board will slide out and yeah. sometimes it won't so it's really fun. It kind of exposes flaws in your surfing, you know, because you've got to be ready to adapt to whatever kind of comes at you. you I, always, I always think when you're surfing twin fins and you feel that just moment when it slips away and then you regain control, whenever it happens and you get it back, you always feel like really cool and loose and punk. <laughs> Although most of the time when it slips and it doesn't go back in, I'm like, damn, I wish I was riding a thruster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been playing a lot with fins as well, actually. I've got really into longboarding this week because it's been small and offshore and I've just totally fallen back in love with, well, with longboarding, but also with getting up at like 4.30 in the morning and just surfing for an hour, uh, you know, like before six, just in the mm -hmm. sun's coming up, which has just been awesome. And because Ash is not here, I'm going to take the opportunity to disagree with him about two things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't argue back. One of them is that, you know, we've said on the show before, uh, I mean, and just for all, for all our listeners, Asher is definitely the best longboarder out of all of us, I would say. But yeah, he's all sort of said that you, the fin that you have in a board, as a rule of thumb, should be about the same length in inches that the board is long in feet. That is just for flex fins. Well, I disagree. And I think that as a rule of thumb, you want to have the fin probably a, an inch longer than the board is in feet. So, you know, I think, and this is true for my Bonza that I've, that's 6'2", and I've been surfing an 8-inch fin in it, which feel, feels way better than the seven inch or six and a half inch fin that I think came with the board. And, and then the, the, my nine, six, uh, longboard that I've just got, I was surfing it for a few weeks with like a nine and a half inch fin in, mm -hmm. and I've just stuck an 11 inch fin in it. And now when the wave's much steeper, I can get right on the nose and there's no slippage and it just goes shooting down the line. And yeah, I always think just generally as a rule of thumb, better to have your fins like a little bit too big than a little bit too small. Cause mm -hmm. if the board's a bit stiff, you just, you know, you, you kind of like you were saying, Harrison, you kind of do slightly bigger arcing turns, which is no bad thing and can look really mm. good. And if your fins are a bit small and you start slipping and then you don't push turns because you're worried about the board skidding out, you end up kind of just trimming down the line. So I don't know. That's my five cents worth. The other disagreement I had with Asher, and maybe I'll get him on the show next time to talk about it, is we ended up having a two hour discussion about your foot placement when you're nose riding, when you're hanging five on your backhand and whether you want to have your leading foot over the nose on the outside rail and your trailing foot over the inside rail to help you trim, which is what I think is easier. And Asher thinks 
uh, as does Joel Tudor, that whenever you're nose riding in, on your backhand, you should go completely switch stance so that what would be your trailing foot is over the nose and what would be your leading foot is actually behind trimming on the inside rail. So anyway, I'd be interested to know if we've got any longboarding, our longboarding listenership have got any opinions on that. Mm. But, uh, yeah. I by habit have my front foot over the nose. Yeah, I do as well. Yeah, yeah But maybe too. that's just bad technique. That's fine until the the wave isn't quite steep enough to nose ride, but still uh-huh. feel it peeling fairly quickly. And then you need to just put your weight back slightly and also on the inside rail. So you're slightly unweighting the nose, but also lifting the board up the face of the wave. So it's a little, so it's nice and high. So it doesn't drop down onto the flats and it, having your leading foot over the nose is fine. As long as you then take your back foot and you move it. So it's on the opposite side of the board. So it's on the inside rail so that you can uh-huh. dig into the wave a little bit. Um, for listeners, I'm doing a lot of hand gestures here, <laughs> which is really great podcasting. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, we'll have to get Asher in, but you know who else we could ask about it? Who's that then? That's Wingnut. Wee! I'm segueing into your You're thing. You're segueing into my thing. Yeah, me and Asher got to, uh, got to surf with Robert Weaver, Wingnut, last week, which was really fun. Really, really nice guy. Really uh, genuinely pleasant guy to share the water with. That's a, that's a bit of a magic moment to, after watching Endless Summer 2 in England as a kid and then being in Costa Rica surfing with Wingnut. Yeah, well, I think... That's that pretty special. It is, yeah. I mean, I think Endless Summer 2 was... How old would I have been? I'd have been... Because that was 94... So probably I saw it in 95, so I must have been 12. And that was probably the first, like, surf... I like, you know, I'd seen clips of surfing in surf shops, but that's probably the sur- first surf movie that I actually sat and watched. And it's probably the first time that I became aware of Costa Rica as a destination. I think that's probably true for a lot of people. Yeah, probably. To end up surfing out there with... Uh, and, you know, talking and conversing with one of the guys that I guess is responsible partly for getting me into surfing is pretty cool. Rolling into the news then, a couple of things that have come up. The biggest and most important as far as I'm concerned is that Matt Warshaw has launched his History of Surfing website, which is going to sit alongside the Encyclopedia of Surfing website that he already runs. Uh, the History of Surfing was a, a real big, like a huge book that he wrote a few years, I think 2005 it was published. It's one of those beautiful, big, heavy coffee table books. Well, it's funny because it is. It's a big, heavy coffee table book full of words. You know, I, when I bought it, because it was always cellophane wrapped in shops, and when I bought a copy, I thought, yeah, I'm going to open this up, and there'll be some writing, but it'll be mostly pictures, and it's not. There's, like, page after page after page of writing, and then one photograph, and it's, honestly, it's probably to this point, like, one of the best books I've read. It's mm-hmm. have, The thing is about having a really heavy book with a lot of words in is that you've got to hold it. So I read it on you, Kindle. I was going to say, what you need <laughs> I've is... Got, I bought the physical copy, and I own the physical copy, and it's a beautiful thing. I read it on my Kindle. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say that you went to a disused church and just put it on the lectern. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. And read it there. That's where it should be. <laughs> um, have, has any of you been to the website? Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's really beautifully designed. Yeah. I think what I really liked about it as well is that he's, you, there's now this wonderful link between the encyclopedia of surfing, which is you know relatively short entries about specific subjects, and the, the more contextual history of surfing. Mm-hmm. And the, the two sites are now starting to link back and forth to each other. Yeah. And I, it, it's just, I mean, it's an incredible resource uh, to have available. Yeah. And um, thank you, Matt, for putting that out there and making it available to mm-hmm. us all. Um, it's, it's an amazing resource. It's an incredible project that he's done. I mean, talk about biting off more than you can chew. Well, I mean, in his case, and successfully chewing it. I don't know how far I can stretch that analogy. But 
Um, I, yeah, it's nice because there's no adverts on it now, and I really hope it doesn't end up covered with uh, elsewhere on the web, kind of like boxes all down at the bottom, you know what I mean? Because it is such a beautiful thing. Paul Speaker has resigned as the CEO of the WSL. He is retaining his part ownership of it. And Dirk Ziff, who is the other co-owner and kind of the money behind the WSL at this moment, is jumping in as the interim CEO until they can appoint someone new. Not much more has been released about that. Paul Speaker came in from an American football background and has been pretty responsible for all the overseeing all the changes that happened over the last few years. And why he's leaving now, I don't really know, but... It wasn't like he said, I'm going to go in for a few years, fix it, fix them a system, and then I'm going to step out. His intention was to stay there for longer. So, yeah, I wonder why he's... uh I wonder why he's stepping out. It would be really interesting to know. Well, I'm just wondering if you, when he took over and there were you know, these big announcements about the ASP becoming the WSL and things like that, there was all this talk about them selling the sport to mainstream media. And, I mean, quite clearly that hasn't happened. Mm. The, the, the web broadcasting they do is now much better. It's much more professional. ABC run a you know, one-hour post-competition program about a month after the end of the competition but they don't let hockey in the box anymore they don't let ABC and and I think Fox Sports in Australia and stuff take that package but it's not like they've really sold it to the mainstream media and I wonder if that's just he came on board with the idea of launching a sport and, and, and creating a new mainstream sport for the world and, it, and that just hasn't happened yeah I mean I could see him coming in having that in his head and then just there being so many prohibitive logistics that it, he just sort of said, actually, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Would you say, though, Harry, that the WSL has been successful in making surfing more accessible to non-surfers? I don't know whether it has. I think it's a lot more accessible to us as yeah. pre-existing surf fans. But, I mean, I think making any sport accessible to someone that has never watched that sport, like if you sit down to watch an American football match, as I have tried to do, knowing nothing about American football. I mean, it, it, it's a mess. Yeah, and but American football is especially impenetrable. Right, but I think surfing can be from, from the outside. I think any sport can be from the outside. And I, I, I think the problem is that if you spend too much of your commentary time trying to explain the game to the couple of people that have never seen it before... Then you kind of lose the surfers. You, you lose the rest of the audience, yep. who are the committed fans. And I, I don't know how you go about that. There sort of needs... You know when you get a new computer game... And there's a tutorial that you can, you can choose to play the tutorial and it takes it through and like makes it really easy to kill the bad guys or beat the other race cars. And you just learn how the controls work and then you go on and do the game. The, the WSL needs to create a tutorial, you know, a half hour program that you can sit and watch about how to how pro surfing works. Um, do you remember we had the idea on the show once that they should have dual commentaries depending on what your base knowledge of surfing <laughs> yeah. I thought that'd be pretty cool there have been a couple of injuries recently Keparacero was injured at Mundaka broke his neck in fact surfing pumping Mundaka on uh, the 1st of January I'll post a video in the show notes uh, Mundaka looking I mean as good as it's I've ever seen it looking was that on New Year's Day yeah there was that yeah there's, a, there's some amazing footage going around um, Kalani Chapman was also injured yesterday surfing uh, in the Dahui backdoor shootout he hit his head in the water uh, was unconscious was pulled from the water with no pulse but was resuscitated by the lifeguards and is now recovering in hospital so um, good luck to both of those guys in their recoveries I often wonder I, so I just got a helmet listeners 
that when I'm swimming around and taking photos of, of our guests and, and filming our guests, I have the helmet on. And it's not because of hitting the bottom and I don't wear it when I'm surfing. It's just because when I'm filming people and I come back up after a wipeout, I quite often would like knock my head on fins and boards when I come up. Not that it's dangerous. It just makes you really angry for like eight seconds, you know? And then people are like, oh, is, is that right? And you're like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, so and I put my helmet on. But you know, when we, when we were out in Hawaii before, when I was out in Titi, and most of these guys aren't wearing helmets, and like these accidents are not happening a lot, but they don't have to happen very often for it to be totally worth wearing a helmet. And, you know, I, I think we might have talked about this in the show before, but I wonder if in the future people will look back, especially at surfing spots like that, and see all this contest footage of people not wearing helmets out there, and will look at it the way that we look at guys riding around on motorbikes without helmets on now. We have had this conversation before, and we talked about sunscreen, how in, say, the, the yeah, 60s right. and 70s or whenever it was, people didn't wear sunscreen, and now we think it's, that's the most stupidest thing ever. And I think you're right. Yeah, I think particularly oh. after, for me, it was after what happened to Owen Wright. Just, I mean, there's, there hasn't been, like, a whole lot that's come out about that. It's still kind of, like, loosely, you know, he's there, but we're not really sure. Like, his family's kept a lot kind of under wraps about that. But it's, it's really scary if you think about the possibility when you're surfing a wave like that of, of what can happen, you know, if you do hit your head. Final thing in the news is that SurfTech are doing a little rebranding and they're doing a full relaunch with new models and they are putting a one-year warranty on all of their boards. I wonder if that's going to come back to bite them. I don't know. It's Costco certainly did, didn't they, with the wave storm initially. Mm, what's, <laughs> the, what's the small print on a warranty like that? I don't know. It's a, it is a limited warranty. Yeah, I wonder uh, what that covers. <laughs> um, must not touch water. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly, the, the first board that they're going to launch with is a... They're, they're only doing 100 of them, but is a Dick Brewer 9.6 gun balsa wood. That's a pretty good board to launch if you're going to put a warranty on it, because then you've only got 100... No one's really going to surf them. People will just buy them, put them on the living room wall. Yeah. And then the small print just needs to say, not covered if falling off living room wall. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I haven't seen any photos of those boards, but uh, I'm imagining they're going to be very, very pretty. I think SurfTech are really kind of interestingly placed in the market to compete with Firewire in terms of producing boards that are pretty durable that are pretty usable by 99% of surfers. I think that Firewire did a great job by getting some tour surfers to be riding their equipment and legitimizing it. And I feel like SurfTech might have kind of dropped the ball there a little bit. Well, what SurfTech have really taken over on is the SUP stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and prone paddle. Pretty much every prone paddle contest is being won by the guys on Bark boards produced by SurfTech. I, I met this guy who did the Molokaita Oahu board paddle. Mm-hmm. What is it, like 64 kilometers? Something like that. Do you guys ever have the urge to do something like that? No, but I did I did really used to enjoy when we had a couple of paddle boards in Cornwall. I used to really enjoy taking them out and not doing like long distance, but just going in and out of all the coves and the cliffs and the caves. Yeah, I like to do something. I feel like my body is sort of suited more to endurance than anything else. I have done endurance running here in Costa Rica in like 35 degree heat. And I'm not very strong, but I can go, I can go a long time. I can go the distance. Yeah. I read recently that humans can run down pretty much any animal in the animal kingdom. Yeah. Huh. I don't know if that, I haven't fact-checked that, but I just thought that was kind of a cool thing to know. So I recently wrote an article, as we mentioned, about uh, how I made my own surfboard. 
um, from scratch. Uh, I kind of sourced the materials from the local hardware store and um, I basically wrote out exactly how I did it. It wasn't a how to make a surfboard as such, but it, I just talked about the way I did it and my experience and how it went, what went wrong and what didn't go wrong and then whether it surfed or not. And um, we got we got a pretty good response on social media from sharing the magazine article and we figured it'd be maybe useful to talk about now uh, since we got a lot of comments on there. And so essentially I went to the hardware store with a particular design in mind. I wanted to do a mini Simmons. I was kind of interested in the shape and I like planing hulls. I like to go fast. And uh, having watched the Tyler Warren Billabong board tails episode where he talked about a lot of his quiver he had a, a what he calls a bar of soap and it's it's essentially a mini simmons it's like 23 inches wide his was a 5 5 i think um, and it has like really wide fin placement in fact only about one inch from the rails so you can have a huge amount of water passing through under that uh, surface area so it's just a really fast board yeah. and so instead of paying the 1900 dollars or whatever it is that Tyler Warren charges for his Mini Simmons, I thought I'd just have a crack at making one. And having done a little bit of research as to how easy it would be to get a, a blank here, I decided, well, it was, a, it was a pretty spontaneous decision to make a board in the first place. I sort of sat there at 9am on a Monday, having finished work for the Christmas break, and thought, I want to make a surfboard <laughs> today. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I went to our hardware store, the Ferretaria, and just figured out exactly what materials they had, how easy it would be to, to get something there and then. And they didn't have polyurethane foam, of course, because um, it's not a typical construction material. Most uh, insulation is used um, expanded polystyrene. So they had a few thicknesses. They had all of the boards were eight foot by four foot, and they had one inch, two inch, three inch, and four inch. And I decided to get three inch just because I thought I could do a little bit of oh, like entry rocker and a bit of tail rocker if I needed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, when I got there, I completely forgot I had made that decision and bought two inch. And so that's quite thin mistake number one yeah very thin um, so i actually put a couple uh, like a one extra layer of four ounce just to accommodate because i did it stringless as well right. um i did a lot of research on the internet and, and most people said like a 5-0 board you know something that kind of shape it was 23 inches wide and so the stringer would kind of add some strength but in reality it's you know i'm not going to be shredding on the board so i figured i'd keep it simple i did originally start with two boards one i did this mini simmons 5.0 stringerless mm-hmm. and I attempted to make more of a fish shape and I tried to put a stringer in it but the glue that I, I bought from the Ferretria with a little bit of a language barrier obviously we live in a Spanish speaking country it melted the EPS <laughs> it melted it pretty violently too uh, and how did you at what point did you discover that that was happening um, when it was smoking <laughs> yeah. my girlfriend was away at the time and I was doing it on her front porch and uh, our surf stretch instructor from Surf Simply was in her garden she lives next door and I was holding this smoking fist shaped blank I was like ah what do I do so uh, yeah that one that one became a write off so I put all my efforts and focus into this mini Simmons um, and the shape you know everyone said sort of that shaping an EPS was at, is actually quite difficult but I didn't have anything to compare it to I'd never worked with, with uh, polyurethane blank before um, and it was fairly straightforward you know I used like 80 grit sandpaper and they didn't it didn't sand off in the chunks like a lot of the online forums said it would it came off quite evenly and I was able to get a nice 50-50 rail like through the you know the nose and the midpoint and then into a bit of a sharper rail at the tail and and you you haven't just for our listeners who because we haven't said but you've got no experience making surfboards at all so it's not like you've done some shaping no no not at all I've never never attempted anything like this before I thought that I would have a crack at this just because over the past say six months you know I've, I've learned 
so much through to simply about surfboard design and outlines and rail shape and, and how it sort of affects the way we ride a board and our response to it that I, you know, I wanted to put all that information uh, into a sort of a, uh, you know, a practical challenge because it's okay thinking, oh, I know this, this stuff, but can you actually apply that information to, to the real world, to, to an actual surfboard? So it was a bit of a personal challenge, really. You know, I wanted to, to, to sort of figure it out. So when you were shaping the rails... I imagine you started the rails thinking, okay, they're going to look like this. And did they end up looking how you had planned or did you sort of get halfway through and did you get to a point where you were like, as long as it's just vaguely looking <laughs> like the edge of a surfboard, um, I'm going to be happy. Well, you know, I don't want any of this to sound like I'm bragging at all, but actually... I am amazing. Yeah. Uh, no, it actually went really well. You know, I was quite particular with my measurements and I did everything very slowly. I took some advice from Harry who said, I can't remember your exact words, but you, you talked about shaping when you were in, in France with a yep. couple of friends. Harry took a little bit too much foam off and then tried to even it out on the other side. And it got to a point where too much had come off. Yeah, I ended from, up with a tail that was about a half inch thick. Yeah, <laughs> that's how you make a Mayerhofen, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so learning from, you know, you know, learning from Harry and his process, I got it fairly right and pretty much symmetrical and then just stepped back and said okay on to the next stage and so I was, I was fairly impressed with what came out of it in the end and you can make some adjustments I guess you would call it when you're using resin just because if you know if you take a chunk out of it by accident you can you can sort of use a bit of a fill layer and on the tail particularly where you want a nice sharp edge on the, on the underside um, you actually can mask it uh, mask like a, a little dam I don't know any way, other way to describe it. You, would, you can dam off a little so the resin fills it in and that becomes your sharp edge rather than relying on the EPS foam itself. So now you shape that board mm-hmm. out of the EPS foam and you have now gotten hold of a PU blank yes, and you have had a little play with it. Yeah. So now how, having felt that, you know, having never touched anything before using that construction shop, EPS foam was fine. Yep. How would you now compare that to working with... PU? Well, working by hand, a polyurethane blank really is, it's like a knife through butter. It's beautifully easy to work with. It, the, the fact is, it's like it's a very smooth surface. So irrespective of whether, you know, that, that it comes off very finely, it's actually much easier to, to look at the board and determine whether it looks even or not. Yeah. EPS because of the size of the beads you know you look down the rail line to, to make sure it's straight and it's because of the way you cut it and because of the way the bead is shaped it never quite looks right so just for accuracy yeah. working with a polyurethane mm. blank is much easier but you know in reality I, it was the same process I, I used the steveless dimensions the blank itself came in quite a typical surfboard shape and I'd like Harry's lesson in the first one I didn't want to take too much off it I didn't want to foil it too much because I you know I'm a heavy guy I wanted it to to work for me and to work for say Jesse who's lighter you know so I made it a little bit wider and a little bit thicker just for usability mm. but riding the mini Simmons when we took it out Jesse and I took it out on like a, a waist high onshore low tide session at Guiones and, and uh, Marine our surf simply water photographer came with us and if you haven't looked at the article just uh, if you're not even interested you know have a look at the photos because it could inspire you to you know if you are practical or you are interested in this you know I, I had an actual surfboard at the end of it and I was amazed the first time when I threw it in the water and it floated <laughs> you know? I was like oh my god thank goodness because um, it was a heavy board the glassing was heavy and and crude and it, you know it, it kind of felt like a surfboard when I was holding it but I, I was very aware that it, it there was a difference and I didn't know what that difference was because it's the same materials and same process but it's not didn't quite feel right so so paddling out and it you know support I weigh like 165 pounds something like that 
I was buoyant. I was on the surface. I could paddle into waves really easily. You know, it was just amazing. I was, I was completely shocked. It was a really fun board to ride. Um, you could race down the line and you could do a little turns. I did a little whitewater climb on it and it was great. Really awesome experience. Now, you mentioned at the start, you know, Tyler Warren, it's 1800 bucks. Uh-huh. Obviously, there were a few materials errors and yep. things like that. What did this one end up costing you? So all in all, it was just over $100. It was about $107, something like that, you know, from start to finish with the materials. And that, um, and that was with buying a few of the wrong products and buying yep. certain products, obviously, in bulk way higher than you ever needed. Absolutely. The, the biggest repairing problem, the smoke damage to your house. <laughs> repairing the smoke damage, yeah. <laughs> new, that was including the new uh, sofas. And, uh, no, that, that's in everything. And I made like a couple glassing, like I used essentially one... Uh, one surfboard portion of glass too much because I had a layer that didn't cure so I had to then rectify that in some way and so yeah that's with more materials than than I will need on my next one yeah. um, and I even think with uh, the the next blank that I've got the arctic foam blank was $80 for a 6.4 that obviously has a stringer it's PU it's uh, it's got nose rocker and, and exit rocker as well a little bit in there and you basically move your template up or down depending on how much nose rock you want or how flat you want it yeah. and that so that costs $80 and just to have so probably more longevity in the board because it's going to be stronger mm-hmm. um, for it to be more user friendly because it's it, you know that entry rocker is going to help on the takeoff things like that to spend 80 bucks and have all that in it to me now having made a, a, a you know a rockerless one from the hardware store it's worth every penny you know and it will probably only put the price up to like hundred and fifty dollars you know for yep. for some you know and i've finished shaping the the, the round nose fish as a piece of foam and it's beautiful it's a you know i'm, I'm like i said i don't want to brag but i'm really proud of myself because i yep. put a lot of time and a lot of effort into learning how to do this accurately or as accurately as i could um and the fact that it's come out with a beautiful fish tail it looks like the steve list shape it's got mm-hmm. some you know really nice volume under the nose with a little bit of rockets it's a really beautiful thing that i that i have sort of put time and effort into so um, i'm really looking forward to, to glassing it and putting some fins on and taking it out that's really cool so given the experience that you've now had and obviously down here we're a little limited in what we have access yeah. to <laughs> on an easy basis yeah. but for people that are you know in europe in the states or in australia wherever they happen to be and they've got maybe easier access to a big diy store yeah what is the one thing that you would you feel would have made the project a lot easier yeah. if you'd had access to the the one biggest thing is buying fiberglass cloth on the roll yeah. i could only get it in one meter by one meter patches mm-hmm. and obviously i've got a link to patches because the 5.0 board is like uh, that's like 60 in 65 inches or something like that and so yeah. it te- it requires two patches and even though uh, so i lapped them by one inch and mm-hmm. that probably became the strongest point because it essentially has now four layers but it was just difficult to do, you know, when you've got, I had to weight down the two patches because you obviously have to put resin over them both at the same time because you, it's one layer of glass. And I would, I weighted them down by just like a can of paint because <laughs> when you're smearing the resin, one side has a higher lip, you know, the top layer. Yep. And so when you start pushing the resin around, it flaps over and sticks to itself mm. and then a thread comes off and, you know, that was, that, was pro- the, that was the most frustrating part and I got really, like, emotionally wound up <laughs> doing a couple of those layers. You know, it was, it was a nightmare. And I know that fiberglass cloth on the roll comes with a very clean cut line. Yeah. And, and I, again, I, I had kitchen scissors to, to do it. I didn't have any, like, mater- like uh, upholstery scissors, which, again, would have been uh, uh, totally better 
to use that, you know, cutting it with sort of a serrated edge, again, dragged strands of fiberglass out and made it untidy. And it just made loads of extra work when you then had to, to sort of prep for the next layer. You know, you had to smooth it all out and, and cut off some of the bits. And that was just a nightmare. So cloth on the roll and really good upholstery scissors. <laughs> I love how you just bootstrapped the whole thing. I think that just kind of makes makes it more of a story and, you know, really cool. Yeah. It, one thing I was noticing when you post that article, you didn't put a shopping list on there. Maybe in the show notes, you could give Harry a shopping list <laughs> so that if any of our listeners wake up on next Saturday morning and they're like, God dang it, I'm going to make a surfboard yeah. today. I, Everything that they sure, need to buy uh, from Home Depot. I'm not sure if I would use me as an example. <laughs> There's some way better sources than... Uh, I can, maybe I can compile a, a bit of a list as, as the information, uh, you know, where I got my information because there's some really excellent forums on there that, that has a huge amount of information and experience, you know. Like I mm. said, I, I don't have anything prior to this. So some of the mistakes that I read about, I tried to prep for or expect, um, but you're kind of blindsided sighted by loads of other things. So it's it's one of those things. It's a learning curve, you know, and it's it's just uh, you have to get on with it. It's so very cool. cool that we live in an age where you can pick up a skill like that from the internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you just think any any skill going back through the entirety of human history, you really had to learn it from someone. And if you yeah. just weren't fortunate enough, you just didn't get to learn. And if everyone died who could do that thing, it was just gone forever. And I mean, there are still skills which have been lost like certain art and craft skills that have been lost and not refound. Yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of cool as a a, a specific demarcation line in in human history. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're a mark in human <laughs> history. You make that so <laughs> You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about food. It's it's not necessarily a surf specific thing. But it does seem to come up a lot uh, in the conversations that I'm having with the guests that we're coming to stay, you know, diet and nutrition. And it seems to be a conversation that I hear a lot within surf culture and within the surf media as well. And there's a few things that people say as if they are just given facts, which <laughs> after doing a bit of digging actually aren't true. So I started just doing a little short piece on nutrition. And like most things, when you start pulling at the threads, it's it's just fascinating and really interesting. So... I'm going to try to cover what the science says about diet and nutrition with respect to common ideas you will have heard in the media and from friends and hopefully leave you with some practical information about what you should and shouldn't worry about when it comes to diet. I'm not going to be giving you my own opinion and the reason is the same as why you shouldn't listen to your own opinion when it comes to diet. That's because we're terrible at figuring out what works for us. Your recollection of what you've eaten, how much and what other factors in your life might be affecting your health, combined with your unavoidable biases, means that listening to your body, in air quotes, when it comes to diet, is the same pretty much as performing a unblinded, uncontrolled, poorly designed clinical trial with one participant. Right? If someone came up to you with some research and their study group had one person in it, multiple variables being changed with no defined hypothesis or endpoint and it had been designed by the participant who had no scientific training and is themselves collecting and analyzing the data probably from memory because they're probably not writing it down and they have no training either in avoiding common statistical errors in data analysis like p-hacking and they're emotionally invested in the result then you would tell them that the study and the data are at best worthless and at worst misleading but when the person is us, we suddenly become convinced that that same data is irrefutable. Are you talking about, say, when an individual eats a lot of bananas and then says that is 
why I'm really good at surfing. <laughs> that would be quite an <laughs> extreme example. Um, but it's just it is the most common thing you hear with diet is people say, oh, just do what works for you. And, and the mm-hmm. point is, right, we really don't know what works for us because we're really bad at, at figuring it out. Well, it's, it's, it's really easy once, as you sort of alluded to in that introduction, when you have uh, a bit of an idea, you know, I decide that uh, I am gluten intolerant or that bananas are going to, be the secret to success you know confirmation bias and so many other things kicks in and and you can totally convince yourself that that is the case mm-hmm. exactly so for that reason everything i'm going to tell you is not anecdotal or personal experience but is as close to the summary of the scientific consensus as i understand it as i can get and i say that because a lot of what i'm about to say is contrary to the current zeitgeist when it comes to food and i just know we're going to get a ton of emails although harry answers the emails so <laughs> that's fine thanks Ru. <laughs> so just before we start how how far down the wormhole did you go researching this well, because <laughs> you sent me I a message of, the other day. Yes. So uh, yesterday, I, I I was probably at it for about ten hours, but I, I was referencing you know five or six years worth of listening to and reading science articles and podcasts for you know four to six hours a week, which is just kind of something that I enjoy doing. Um, and and I had over the last few years been making notes of going if I ever do a piece on nutrition, I'll come back to that. Yeah. So I was rereading and re-listening to like a few years of notes. Um, and actually, I can't find anything where this information is all in one place anywhere online. So I kind of thought it would be useful. And actually, if you're listening to this episode with someone who doesn't surf, this is perhaps going to be a good uh, a good section for them because I think it's of general interest to everyone. So anyway, if you do want to write in and correct us on the science, please do. We love that. We love getting the science a bit wrong and then being corrected on it. But please don't write in and try to tell us that the entire scientific community is wrong based on your own personal or anecdotal experience. Having said that, there are researchers who say that the science of nutrition is deeply flawed for all those same reasons. It's not as worthless as personal experience or anecdote. It's just really hard to design studies that control for all the factors Uh, After all, studies into long-term diet have to be done over a long period of time. So it's real people and their real lives that are being studied. It's easy to control what people eat over a short period of time, but it's really hard to control or monitor what people eat over a long period of time. So researchers are relying on things like food diaries, which of course is subject to errors and all the biases that I just mentioned. That being said, nutrition research has allowed us to pick up the big signals in the data, the low-hanging fruit, if you'll excuse the pun. But as you zoom in on the smaller effects of particular foods or diets, it just gets harder and harder to see the signal over the noise. It looks like if we're going to move forward from here, we'll need to solve the problem of controlling and recording the subject's diet with much greater accuracy. And honesty. Yes, and honesty. And and there's a really grey area there between what's intentionally honest and what's just your own cognitive biases kicking in without you realising it. Yeah. What do you mean two cookies? I only had one cookie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what are the big wins that we've learned over the last 40 years of research? Well, there's a lot, actually, because the big wins are often all that matters. If we have too much detailed information about what we eat for every meal, at some point it just becomes totally impractical and therefore unsustainable. You know, like how deep do you go? 
For example, there was a study recently that looked at the first 100 ingredients in a popular cookbook and then did a literature search and 72% of them either increased or decreased the risk of cancer. <laughs> Imagine trying to tweak your diet to that degree. It would be like a full-time job, totally unmanageable for the average person. And then you get diminishing returns on your efforts anyway, you know, like when you're doing more and more work for smaller and smaller benefits. On the other hand, getting basic advice that's easy to follow and has a big effect, well, that's really useful. Right, so here it is. Are you ready? Here's the conclusion of 40 years of research. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Eat a moderate and varied diet with mostly plants. Don't drink and smoke. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's simple. Uh, that's true. That's true for the average person, uh, unless you have a specific medical condition or a specific lack of something in your diet. If you do that, then you're 95% of the way there and everything else has just got massively diminishing returns. Uh, that's probably going to be a relief to some of you and a massive disappointment to some of you because everyone wants a magic superfood or super diet that's going to stop them from feeling tired, bloated, gassy and will clear up their skin and make you live to 120. Unfortunately, the truth really is that short and simple and it doesn't lend itself well to uh, the sales of cookbooks uh, or to marketing celebrity health gurus. There's a lot of people out there looking for a diet that will make them feel better and consequently, there's a lot of people out there ready to sell you that idea. Hence, memes going around like superfoods, eating organic, detoxing, antioxidants, the evils of fast food, eating local, eating GMO-free, and fad diets that are full of uh, unsubstantiated claims. I'm sure that many of our listeners, uh, at least one of those things I just mentioned, will be a bit of a sacred calf to a greater or lesser extent. And I'm not saying all of those things are bunk, but those are the most common ideas that I've heard around the place. And so I thought it would be interesting just to kind of do a quick look at what the science says about each of them, one after the other. All right. So first, superfoods. The idea of superfoods is entirely a marketing ploy. It's a total scam. You are being had. You have to eat a variety of foods so that you have a good balance of nutrients. French fries can be part of that diet along with kale. There's nothing inherently bad about French fries. You shouldn't live on French fries because they have a narrow nutritional value and they're high in calories. But you shouldn't live on kale either. It's having a narrow diet that's that's unhealthy. Eating just a few things or eliminating entire food categories is what's bad. Variety is your friend although that variety should be made up of mostly plants, and that's only a specific piece of advice because in first-world countries, uh, the diet can easily exclude plants. It's easy to end up relying too much on meat and potatoes, which is a great way of getting carbs and proteins, but it's not going to give you all the vitamins you need. So just before you go into this, what is a superfood? Okay, so this is how the superfood scam works. First, a company will corner a supply chain on something that usually comes from somewhere far off, some exotic-sounding corner of the world, and then they will make up some non-specific positive health benefits. And then, usually, Whole Foods will jump on board and, and promote the idea because they can charge twice as much, the people importing or producing the food can charge twice as much, and at the end of the day, the customer is the one being had. You, you hear that certain things are superfoods. Is it just the idea that, that these foods are above average in certain ingredients, vitamins, minerals? So, so usually superfoods are supposed to have really high nutritional content. And then usually, depending on how extreme the marketing proponent is being, they will make increasingly implausible claims about the health benefits of the food, right. you know, which usually end up in preventing or even curing cancer. <laughs> 
So kale is a good example of the latest superfood, along with acai berries. There's nothing special about either of those two things. The, the whole idea of superfood is completely invalid as a nutritional or scientific concept. In fact, if you look at the specific nutritional value of most superfoods, they're simply not as good as most everyday foods that you can buy. You're better off eating broccoli instead of kale, and strawberries have more nutritional value than acai berries. Then there's that one where you're supposed to eat the blue-green algae. Have you guys seen that one? No. Uh, you're better off just eating broccoli. But don't get me don't wrong, get if you like kale, eat kale. I personally love the acai coconuts that Nick makes at the Go Juice Bar down here in Nosara. They're just absolutely delicious. They're kind of like co- uh, uh, acai ice cream inside a coconut. It's amazing. So yeah, just eat, just eat the foods you like. Eat a variety. Uh, just because something comes from a distant sounding exotic location or some ancient tribe used it, that doesn't mean it's better for you. Then there's this idea that's been around for a while that aging is caused by a buildup of free radicals damaging cells. Uh, the, the idea was that the solution was to consume these things called antioxidants, which then interact with the free radicals in a way that prevents this in some complicated biological way, which is way above my pay grade. Uh, so everyone's been promoting antioxidants-rich diets and antioxidant supplements, but a recent review of the literature concluded that, in fact, high levels of oxidants cause just as many problems, if not more, than low levels. The best way to think about this is that we've, involved, we've evolved our own internal homeostasis of antioxidants and oxidative-free radicals. The most powerful antioxidants that we know of are ones that your body makes for itself, and nothing you eat is going to come close to it. If you needed more, your body would just make more. There's this idea that you are what you eat, but it's just not true. I mean, you're not just what you eat. There's a lot that goes on in terms of production inside your body. So, you know, if I eat a lot of fish, it's not like I'm now a bit more fish. (laughs) Um, There are some things that we do have to eat because we can't produce them, like vitamins. Uh, But you don't need to worry about that if you follow the eat a moderate and varied diet, which is mostly plants rule. So speaking of vitamins, this brings us on to the sinister world of supplements. Um, By the way, I'm sure everyone knows by now that vitamin C does not help or prevent colds or flu. That's a total myth. Um, But it's a pretty interesting one because you can see how easily a piece of pseudo-knowledge like that can become so accepted that it's considered common sense by most people. And at this point, no amount of personal experience ever debunked it, which is why we have science, folks. (laughs) Woohoo! Okay, so first, the supplement industry is very poorly regulated, and there have been numerous studies showing that the entire industry is rife with contamination, adulteration, which means deliberately putting drugs in supplements and herbal products, and also substitution, like putting alpha-alpha in St. John's wart pills, for example. Most of those studies have come out of the US and Canada, but another study recently in Australia showed that 92% of Chinese medicine products were contaminated as well as either adulterated or substituted. 50% of them had drugs in like steroids or warfarin, which is a blood thinner, which is a pretty serious drug that you should know if you're taking, uh, and ephedrine, which is a stimulant that uh, people take when they go out clubbing in Indo. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just mixing them in there, and none of it's on the label. 20 out of 25 had um, above unsafe levels of heavy metals, and one in 10, uh, and one had uh, 10 times the safe level of arsenic. Um, the reason why this is happening shouldn't be a mystery. It's that the supplement industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's a multi-billion dollar unregulated industry in most of the world. Yeah. Even if what you're taking isn't contaminated, it's important to remember that plants have drugs in them naturally too. There's a common misconception that you have drugs on the one hand and natural herbal products on the other, but herbal products can contain really strong drugs. Drugs occur naturally in plants. St. John's wort, for example, contains a chemical called hypophorin, 
and while we're on the subject, it's not like you have chemicals on the one side and then the natural world is free of chemicals. You know, the, the natural world is made up 100% of chemicals. Chemicals are nature's own building blocks. And we've said this on the show before, but, you know, water can be accurately described by its component molecules, dihydrogen monoxide. That's why when the food babe says things like there are no acceptable levels of chemicals in food, the media should rightly respond by telling her to... (laughs) (laughs) I showed a, a mutual friend of ours, actually, a list of all the chemicals which make up an entirely organic banana. And she thought I was telling her that the organic banana was contaminated with all these chemicals. And she just couldn't wrap her head around the idea that it wasn't contaminated. Just this is what an organic banana is made of. So going back to supplements, the danger with buying natural products is that they're not usually properly regulated. And so you don't really know what you're getting. Thankfully, most of the time they do nothing, but you are getting ripped off. The the danger is that if you think you're getting something in a supplement and actually you're not getting it, you might not think you need to put it in your diet and then you're not getting it at all. Vitamins are probably the most common supplement people take. And unless, again, you have a specific condition or a situation meaning that you're lacking a specific vitamin in your diet, then the most scientifically accurate way to describe vitamins is expensive piss. <laughs> on the, on the, the logic that your body just can't absorb it. Yes. If you, if you take four times the daily dose of vitamin C, most of it will be processed straight into your kidneys and your bladder and out. Exactly. And but, some other vitamins require fats to be absorbed or other components to be absorbed as well. So. Exactly, yeah. So there's this idea that if something's good for you, then lots of it must therefore be better for you. And and that's kind of what most of the supplement industry is built on, but it just simply isn't true. Again, your body, when it's working normally, is homeostatic, meaning that it's got all these internal checks and balances. I like the analogy that just because a car won't work without gas doesn't mean that once the gas tank is full, if you pour gas all over the inside of the car and the seats, it means the car's going to work better. If you are going to get supplements and just generally look out for weasel words like promotes health or the word wellness should always be a bit of a red flag, as well as as part of a healthy lifestyle or as part of a balanced diet. These are what the FDA called structure and function claims, and it's how advertisers get around uh, regulations. They're basically making very non-specific claims. The FDA is stepping up its game a lot in 2016 by clamping down on this stuff, but they've still got a long way to go. Uh, So you mentioned gluten before, Harry. It's kind of an interesting one. And probably of our guests, I'd say it's the most common request, apart from probably being a vegetarian. So gluten is a protein which you find in rye and barley and wheat. Uh, And as part of researching this, I learned that gluten in bread is what stopped it falling apart, which meant people could carry it. And so gluten bread meant that uh, for the first time, humans started migrating all over the world, which is kind of interesting. Uh, And therefore probably prompted people like my auntie to say things like, who do they think they are coming over here with their gluten bread? Some people, (laughs) some people have celiac disease, which is uh, a a genetic autoimmune disorder. It actually affects under 1% of people and it basically means they're allergic to gluten. You can go and actually be specifically tested for that. There's no reason for you to try and figure it out by varying your diet. You can just go go and see a doctor, ask to be tested and, and they can and it's very simple. It's also possible to be mildly allergic to gluten um, but it's also possible that you're just allergic to something else which also happens to be in the thing which also has gluten in it Um, because there are a lot of other things that are in everything that has gluten in it which you can have allergic reactions to it's almost impossible to tell if you're mildly allergic to gluten or anything else just by varying your own diet like we've talked about so I mean I personally think from reading 
the literature that it seems likely that there's a lot of people who think they're allergic to gluten and actually aren't. We're going to put a link in the show notes to an article by Laurie LaForest on science-based medicine, who does a really good job of unpacking the whole thing. It is pretty complicated, and I'm not going to go into it more right now on the show. But if you think this is something that's affecting you, um, go into the show notes, read the article. It's, It's the best thing that I've read on it. Okay, so this is the one where everyone's going to lose their minds and start writing angry emails to Harry. (laughs) There is no evidence that organic food is better for you in any way, and there is no reason why it should be. Uh, There's no plausible mechanism by which we would expect it to be better for you. Organic is a marketing term and not a scientific term. So the Academics Review wrote an article, which we'll also link to in the show notes, which looked back at 25 years of organic farming and concluded that there was an industry-wide systematic deceptiveness in their marketing. Uh, It shouldn't come as a big surprise because farms can sell organic products for twice as much and stores sell them for three times as much. And it's all off the back of the public's belief that they're getting something which is either of premium quality or better for them or better for the environment. And there's just no reason why any of that should be true. This review does a thorough job of documenting the campaign of misinformation, which is to say claims unsupported by scientific evidence, uh, the purpose of which has been to grow the organic market. One example is that organic farms are allowed to use pesticides, and of course they do use them because they're really useful. But they have to use natural pesticides rather than synthetic ones. That's natural in fairly big inverted commas. Yes. When they've been tested, which natural pesticides often aren't, but when they are tested... They're every bit as toxic as the synthetic ones, but less effective. And so you have to use a lot more of them. So they're actually worse for the environment. Now, I cite that example specifically because when you ask people why they buy organic, in a recent UK survey, 95% of people answered that it was to avoid pesticides. If you're concerned about pesticides, just wash your fruit and vegetables, especially if it's organic. That won't work for everything, but it will for most pesticide residue. But remember that the amount that's on food is well below safe levels. There's no evidence that anyone is getting sick from pesticides. It's really well regulated. There's really no reason to be concerned about this. But the narrative that the marketing people of organic food is, are trying to push on you is that you should be. And that justifies them selling you their organic products at a higher price. So there was a lot of people, I thought this was really interesting, there's, there's a lot of people who objected to the endorsement by the government of the organic label because there was market research already which showed that people assumed it was somehow stating that this was a product of higher quality, which is misleading. Mm-hmm. The USDA decided to ignore that and go ahead with the label anyway. They said that they weren't endorsing the product. It was just that people were using the label anyway and they said it should mean something. Uh, also, there was an economic argument that it kind of opened up foreign markets to US organic farmers. So the organic label means no GMO, no radiation, no synthetic pesticides, no synthetic fertilizer. Those might all sound like scary terms, but again, none of those things are bad for you in any way in in the way that they're used in conventional farming. But by making this label, which highlights that they're absent from a specific product, it's perfectly reasonable for a consumer to assume that they must be bad for you. The other reason that people buy organic is because they believe that organic produce is more nutritious. And again, numerous studies show that this just simply isn't the case. Even the Organic Trade Association admits that organic food is not better for you or more nutritious. But of course, the way they say it is the jury is still out. There are a few studies which show slightly higher concentration of nutrients in some organic produce. But you're not getting more nutrients. You're just getting a higher concentration So what's really happening is that you're not getting more nutrients in your potato. You're just getting a smaller potato with the same amount of nutrients in it. 
People buy organic because they think it's better for you. It isn't. They think it's better for the environment. It's not. They think it's safer and it isn't. And they think it's more nutritious, which it isn't. They also think it tastes better. But again, there's no reason why it would taste better. Uh, Actually, the taste of the food has got much more to do with the type of seeds that you're cultivating. Um, But we'll we'll come back to that later. So the next thing that everyone's going to write in about that I'm going to just touch on quickly is GMOs. Because we've spoken about this before. Yeah. So that labeling issue with organic food, we're now facing that same dilemma with GMOs. The anti-GMO crowd want food labeled as non-GMO or GMO-free, but my personal opinion is that consumers will quite reasonably assume that GMOs are bad because otherwise, why would you label it? So I think it's a really bad idea to start labeling food as GMO-free. It doesn't take a genius to figure out why the organic food industry would want you to think that GMOs are bad for you. But again, there's no reason why they would be. There's no plausible mechanism. And unsurprisingly, there's no evidence that GMOs are bad for you either. The meme that GMOs are bad for you is obviously doing the rounds at the moment, but it's all based on ideology, specifically the naturalistic fallacy, rather than any actual evidence. I'm not going to go into it because we've done two episodes on GMOs, but if you are interested, I was really pleased with the deep dive we did into GMOs in episode 25, which you won't actually find in our iTunes feed, but you can hear it on Beach Grip. Um, As long-time listeners will know, I took the show down because we criticised Kelly Slater's anti-science stance on GMOs pretty scathingly, and a couple of listeners felt we were a bit overly harsh on him. Uh, I didn't think I was, but I was prepared to accept that I might be wrong about it. I thought that I may have put up a show which was polarizing rather than informing people and so would ultimately do more harm than good, even if it was scientifically accurate. As it turned out, we ended up with only a handful of complaint emails and nearly 100 emails asking us to put the show back up. The only reason I haven't reposted it now is that I thought it might be a bit odd to have it suddenly drop into people's uh, you know, iPhone app on their phone, apropos of nothing, especially as I noticed that Kelly's gone pretty quiet on the whole subject. Um, If he has done a U-turn on the subject of GMOs, then I'm genuinely more impressed by his response to evidence than I am by surfing. Um, But if he does another big anti-GMO rant, we'll probably just repost the show. (laughs) Anyway, for now, you can listen to it on Beach Grit, who flatteringly reposted it, along with a very complimentary article. So big thanks to Derek Riley over at Beach Grit for that. Also, William Salatin did a brilliant deep dive into the anti-GMO movement for Slate.com, which we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, And he also concludes at the end of the article, the war against genetically modified organisms is full of fear-mongering, errors, and fraud. It was a very good article, that. Yeah, it's brilliant. It took him several years of really like getting in the community and and seeing how it worked and communicated. It was also one that I had Google read to me because it was incredibly long. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I had it read it to me while I was making lunch. Ironic having a, an article about genetically modified food read by an... Genetically <laughs> modified... Uh, <laughs> by a mechanically voice. Or, uh, modified voice. Uh, so, if organic food really isn't that good for you, is fast food really that bad for you? Well, you probably won't be surprised at this stage in the show to hear me say that it's actually not. Now, I'm not saying you should go out and do a Morgan Spurlock, but if you look at a McDonald's meal, just to take an iconic example... What is it in there that you think is really so toxic? The meat, the bread, the lettuce, the fries? They might not be the best quality ingredients, but they don't have some evil toxic substance in them that other foods don't have. Actually, at 510 calories, a Big Mac is actually a pretty good source of protein and vitamins as a ratio to its calorific content. If you order an organic cheeseburger at your local farmer's market made of local beef and homegrown fried potatoes with homemade organic lemonade, you'll certainly be eating far more calories than a Big Mac meal. 
often with just as much or more of exactly the things you want to avoid having in excess from a fast food joint, which is to say the granola oil used to fry the fries and the sugar in the condiments and drinks. If you go into McDonald's and you order a burger without sauce, small fries and go for water instead of Coke, that's not an unhealthy meal. Morgan Spurlock, in his willfully misleading film, had very little variation in his diet, which is the one key rule. He also supersized every time they offered it to him, which is a little bit like upgrading your airline ticket every time the airline gives you the opportunity to do it and then complaining that you're broke. (laughs) One fast food joint that really can blindside you, though, is my personal favorite, Starbucks. And yes, it is a fast food joint. Starbucks has tons of drinks over six and 700 calories, and those fruit smoothies can be full of sugar, too. I'm just saying, I really do love Starbucks, but it is a fast food joint, just like McDonald's. So I would say that the standard thing, given that we're talking about McDonald's burger, is the idea that, that, you know, they're full of preservatives and they don't rot, and there's videos all over the place of that. Yeah, they they do. That's just absolutely not true. If you put a McDonald's... um, I can't remember how that video came about and what the uh, and what it was that they were doing. But yeah, essentially, if you put a McDonald's burger or McDonald's fries on a shelf, they'll just go off like any other food will. Yeah. So my, I, my understanding is of those videos is that in the right environment, you can pretty much preserve anything, and particularly in a modern sealed house with central heating, you'll generally find the humidity drops so low that an awful lot of bacteria can't really survive. Hmm. Um, and... and a burger will sit on a shelf for ages, but so will almost anything that you put there that doesn't have an inherently large quantity of moisture within the the, the, the food. Um, Big Macs do rot in the backseat of a Peugeot um, 205. <laughs> that's, uh, that's it's left for some time. <laughs> <laughs> he found out when he'd returned to England after being in Costa Rica for six months. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> So uh, if it's okay to eat a bit of fast food as part of your varied, moderate, mostly plant-based diet, should you at least detox from time to time? Well, no, you shouldn't. So what are these toxins supposed to be? Are they bacteria, chemical pollutants, trans fats, heavy metals? To avoid being tested, they leave this pretty vague. Actual medical treatments will tell you exactly what they do and how they do it. Alternative detoxification therapies don't do either they pretty much leave it up to the imagination of the patient to invent their own toxins if the marketers leave their claims vague a broad spectrum of patients will believe that the product will help them and of course the word toxin is sufficiently scientific sounding to convince most people just on its own there's a ton of detox scams out there like pills colon cleanses foot pads but it's all just a con the only really effective detox device available is your own liver which is great because it's free just don't break it with too much booze the liver (laughs) changes the chemical structure of foreign compounds so they can be filtered out of the blood by the kidneys which then excrete it in your urine and it's kind of weird that alternative medicine practitioners never mention this option to their customers after all it is natural so eating local is another thing that comes up quite a lot um, so I want, to, I want to talk about this, and, and I wasn't going to include it, but we had some feedback uh, from our episode where we talked about buying from local shapers versus buying off the rack, mm-hmm. uh, where one of the listeners was shocked Several and appalled. Several of the listeners were, sh- were shocked and appalled by, that we were advocating buying a surfboard made in Taiwan uh, with, of course, the CO2 output resulting from its transport rather than buying locally. Um, actually, there were really nice emails on the whole. There were. Uh, and pretty funny, some of them as well. I like the guy who threw his phone at the wall in shock. Yeah. Did he throw his Taiwan-made phone at the wall? 
So I think that buying locally, whether it's surfboards or food, is commonly thought to be a good thing. And obviously there are political elements like supporting the local economy. But purely from an environmental point of view, is it that simple? Uh, So food in the US, I couldn't find any data on Costa Rica, but food in the US travels on average 1,500 miles to get to your plate, which I thought was surprisingly far. Um, So you'd think if you cut that distance down, that's going to lower your carbon footprint, which has to be good, right? Well, like everything, it's a bit more complicated than that. You have to know a lot of variables before you can understand the true impact of buying locally. First, the transport of the food only contributes 10% of the overall, overall carbon footprint of producing the food. Of course, different types of food have different carbon footprints. Beef and lamb are really high, veggies are less, chickens actually aren't that bad. Okay, so here's a stat for you to put that into perspective. If you're the average American omnivore and you switch one meal per week from beef to something vegetarian, let's say lentils, which are actually one of the lowest CO2 output producing foods, then you're reducing your CO2 footprint overall more than if you reduced your total food miles to zero and grew everything at your house. Does that make sense? So one one meal a week going from a beef meal to going vegetarian does the same for CO2 output as growing all your own food. Yeah, more actually. It's pretty um, impressive. Wow. Yeah, I yeah. find that pretty surprising. But what surprised me even more was this, that there might be some foods where there's actually a net negative to buying locally. For example, some locations have an environment which is better suited to producing certain kinds of food. Um, so it takes less energy, therefore lower CO2 output to grow them even when you allow for the transport. For example, an acre of land in Idaho can produce about 50% more potatoes than an acre of land in Kansas. So if you live in Kansas, it's actually effective for you to buy Idaho potatoes rather than local potatoes. The local potatoes cost more produce to produce in terms of carbon and inputs, etc., than shipping the potatoes from Idaho. In fact, it, it's so extreme in some cases that one analysis, one analysis showed that if you live in the UK, the lamb you import from New Zealand has a lower carbon footprint than lamb reared in the UK. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? It's amazing. And also that's true of tomatoes grown in Spain versus tomatoes um, grown in the UK. Yeah. Uh, There's also economies of scale. Large industrial farms may just be more efficient than local farms, and that may completely erase any advantage of buying locally. It may be true for surfboards too. I don't know. Unfortunately, it's complicated, and there's no simple formula. You almost have to know for everything what the net cost is of buying from different sources and producing in different places. Um, and, And doing it for surfboards would probably be a good one for a future show. Yeah. Growing your own food is incredibly inefficient. It's definitely not environmentally friendly. It's a luxury. If everyone in the world grew their own food, it would uh, be completely unsustainable. It's ironic that culturally, when we think about being environmentally conscious, we imagine a small homestead out in the country where we grow our own food. But actually, it's far less environmentally impactful for us as humans to live in tower blocks where we have all the economies of scale um, when it comes to heat and energy and transport, and then to mass produce food in the most efficient areas possible and ship it in. But of course, that doesn't fit with the culture and ideology of green living. And I think it's a great example of where we see a divide between people who like to be culturally green, in inverted uh, quotes, uh, and people who want to be scientifically green, which is kind of a a personal peeve of mine. But again, that's a whole other show. One of the points that I thought was interesting that was raised universally, all the emails we got on the surfboard buying local uh, thing, all of them... Uh, spoke about the idea of supporting a local community. And I just thought it was quite interesting because most, you know, even if that was the case, 
all food is grown somewhere and all surfboards are made by somebody. So when you buy that product, you support a community. You know, like whether it's a, whether it's a community in Thailand or a community in the States, you're supporting that community. And the other side is most people don't live in a community where food is grown and surfboards are made. So you have to buy outside of your local community. Nobody makes surfboards here and nobody grows carrots here. So to buy either of them, I have to support a community somewhere else in the world, whether it's five miles down the road or 500 miles down the road kind of doesn't make a difference i totally agree with you and while i was researching this article i wrote a really really long uh section on exactly that subject and then i suddenly started realizing that i was straying quite heavily into uh the political arena and i decided (laughs) to just rewind and i deleted it and decided not to bring it up but yeah i i totally agree with you yeah having said all that as many of you know we're developing a farm here at surf simply where we're increasingly growing the food that we serve at the resort That might seem kind of surprising considering everything that I've just said, but there's several reasons why we're doing it. Firstly, it's really fun and it's an interesting project. Dennis, our chef, who is just this amazing human being, is relentlessly enthusiastic when it comes to producing food. And he in particular is loving the process of learning more about it. Uh, That's also the reason why we're using traditional farming methods rather than trying to optimize for maximum yield. It's just fascinating learning how food's been grown in this part of the world. It's also cool to see the organic waste from the resort turn into compost, which we then put on the soil and use to grow the food. It just feels good emotionally to reconnect with this whole process. The other reason is that by growing our own food, we can choose variety of seeds which have been optimized for taste. Most of the strains you find in shops are optimized for shelf life or yield or to look good. But when you grow your own, you can choose types of tomatoes which aren't commercially viable but are absolutely delicious. So to wrap up, this is such a huge subject. And like most things, each little thread is so interesting. You know, the more you pull at it, like I said, Um, I didn't even cover eating meat and the mixed messages you hear about that. And also the whole bunch of diets like blood type diets and paleo diets. So maybe we'll have to do a part two of this sometime. For For now, though, I'll finish the way I began. If you were to follow to the letter every piece of scientific research on diet and nutrition that's been published over the last 40 years, You would see no statistical difference in your health or longevity over following the simple rule, eat a moderate and varied diet, which is mostly plants, don't drink or smoke, and try to find a sport you enjoy because exercising every day is really important. And uh, may I suggest surfing? Okay, so that's about all we have time for on this episode. But before we go, we have a few what to watches for you to tide you over until we're back again. Uh, Rue, what's your uh, recommendation? Uh, so, well, you sent me a link to this, actually, Harry, a few days ago, but the um, Berserk, which is like a big wave 15-minute film on YouTube by O'Neill, which is basically about Russell Burke. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, so apologies if not, but um, it kind of just follows him charging big waves. There's amazing footage of him when he's 15 surfing at hours, mm-hmm. kind of Kelly Slater commentating over the top, and then it, and it follows. Now, I guess he's in his sort of late teens, early 20s, and he's on the big wave world tour and he won the Cape Fear event, the Red Bull Cape Fear event. And the the movie is just like so beautifully shot and watching it. I, I, it's funny because I was so, I've been so into longboarding and it's been kind of knee waist high here for the last few weeks and I've just been loving it. And then I watched that movie this morning and I just really want to go and surf big waves more than anything. <laughs> I, I don't remember getting that frothed watching a movie for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Will? I, I have two what to watches. And I Ooh, couldn't ignore you spoilers. Just actually, just before I talk about the first one, I had no idea that RVCA is actually called Ruka. 
Did you mm-hmm. guys know that? Yeah, I just I found ha- that out too. Yeah, I yeah. Had the the V that we can see is actually the Greek U, and it was because I had to look it up because I thought it was crazy. They couldn't make stone letters curved; it was more difficult, so they just did a sharp edge, mm-hmm. and so the V is the U. Anyway, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that was it. Was one of those um, company names or logos, whatever, that I'd always just looked at and never bothered to say out loud in yeah. my head. I just recognised yeah. it. You know? Yeah. I don't know if other people do that or if that's just a dyslexic thing. I have no idea. Anyway, (laughs) um, so my what to watch or one of them is the Rukaloha, as we now know it's called. Um, And it's uh, Al Nost and Ellis Erickson. Um, They're on some very cool looking sort of 70s single fins. They're surfing Sunset Point. And it's just super stylish, really interesting surfing. Um, And just a generally like well edited video, you know. It's kind of, it's got that kind of backyard feel to it. It's not Mm -hmm. super slick. um, It's just great footage and an interesting story so that's my number one what to watch my mm-hmm. second one which harry and i were talking about earlier is tommy witt and Corey colapinto two amazing long waters they're basically just riding waves together they're swapping places doing loads of crazy cross steps and uh, switch stance surfing and it's just they're just having so much fun and i think that is really important to, to be reminding of when you know when we're thinking about surfing and, and why we do it in the first place and that's a great reminder yeah linking back actually to what we we're talking about right at the start of the episode with endless summer too there's that section when they're at ollie's point yeah. and it's robert august and wingnut and they're they're you know sharing the wave one yeah. of them would bottom turn and then stall at the top while the other one bottom turned around and stalled and they, they sort mm. of traded off for a little bit and that's something i've always wanted to try and do and and i have been trying to do uh recently which has basically just involved me paddling in and dropping in on everybody <laughs> <laughs> without briefing them at all that i want them to surf around me or anything but um <laughs> but no it, it, it i thought it was really cool that they're doing that but with a you know holding a GoPro yeah. and so you're seeing them weave around each other. It's such yeah. a cool angle. So if I see you paddling into the wave in front of me, are you going to drop to the bottom and I'm gonna and I'm gonna like take a high line as you take off, or are you gonna like stall as you take off and I'm gonna bottom turn around you? I think the person that that, that I uh, as I drop in, I would have to stall and just hang myself up in the in in the lip a little bit as you bottom turn around me. Okay. So that, I, and then as you go past me, I would drop in behind you. What could possibly go wrong? What could go wrong? Exactly. Especially Let's do that on our trip. brand new longboards. Yeah. Uh, on that subject, Harry, were you attempting that when you put a hole in your brand new <laughs> the other day? No, but that was that was that was me trying to show off in oh, front okay. of Wingnut. Oh I, right. I went for a very oh, uh, classic error. Here's a good surfer. I'm going to try and show I'm off and impress and them. Yeah. yeah. Never works. Um, no, I, I went for a slightly overly exuberant floater. Ah. Uh, and as I as I dropped back in I, I stayed up a little bit too long and as i came down the wave the white water was kind of exploding up underneath me and just yeah punched my heel through the deck of my oh, board dear. to but anyone wondering uh jesse described harry this morning as uh like a great dane you know not really aware of their size <laughs> <laughs> that's an amazing description yeah <laughs> I'm one of those dogs that tries to get on the couch with yeah, you. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, think, I think you sometimes forget that you're quite a big dude, and when you're gestic- gesticulating enthusiastically, sometimes I notice people like not sure if they should flinch or duck for cover. <laughs> <laughs> um, Harrison, what's your what to watch? Oh, I just watched Mason Ho's new video. I think it's called Northern Praying Mantis. Yeah, it's about five minutes of him and his sister and his friends just surfing around Hawaii and. It's just it's one of those edits that you watch and you just get so excited to go surfing because he's just taking these bizarre waves that just you know you feel like you wouldn't ever be able to surf and he's you know throwing airs on them and doing floaters and 
he's the he's, guy that makes surfing look fun in exactly videos. yeah i mean I, I loved license to chill i love anything that mason hosing because he just you know he oozes fun when he surfs and it's just it's awesome to watch so that's yeah. a good one for sure i liked uh the footage of him sort of riding the the backwash off the rock and then coming very right, cool my what to watch is it, it's a really really cool little movie it's called surfer's blood it's on red bull tv right now the first 20 minutes or so might take you a little bit to get through it it's really really beautifully shot and it's really really interesting but it's shot in the basque country in spain and it's interviewing locals to the basque region and a lot of it is subtitled but it does then move and bounce around and they they interview mayerhoff about some of his boards they interviewed flea the the big wave surfer from uh, from santa cruz uh it's a really really beautifully shot uh, and very, very uh, interesting film. And there's a bit that you will love, Will, uh, because the guys behind Hydrodynamica... Ah. Um, well, they have a good Instagram. They have a really good Instagram. They were putting on an art exhibition when they were filming this, and so they're walking around this amazing art installation, and they've just done this... It, it, it's the history of surfboards from uh, Simmons forwards. Wow. And... It, oh, <laughs> it's, it's about a 10, 15-minute section of this movie, and I would give my left arm to walk around that exhibit. They had yeah. some such cool boards in there. Mm, interesting. So anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you enjoy those edits while we're away. If you want to get hold of us in the meantime, you can, as Rue mentioned earlier, you can email podcast at surfsimply.com to get hold of me. Rue, we can get hold of you. You can send your angry tweets about the bit I just did on food to at surfingsimply on Twitter. Will? I am on Instagram and Twitter as at Will and the Water. And Harrison? I'm on Instagram as at Harrison Avery with two N's. We'll be back with another episode in a couple of weeks. But for now, from all of us, goodbye. Bye. Bye. See you later. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.